From PPRO, this is Payments Radio, the show for and about the payments industry, covering news, interviewing experts, and talking about all the ways the world pays. My name is Megan Johnson, your host of Payments Radio, and this is part one of a three-part series on CBDCs, otherwise known as GovCoins or Central Bank Digital Currencies. Today, I'm joined with Ralph Alhausen, the executive advisor at PPRO, and the one and only Dave Birch, author and advisor on digital financial services. Welcome, gentlemen. So let's start off um, by defining a CBDC. So Dave, how would you define a CBDC in one sentence? Well, it's electronic cash that's a claim on risk-free central bank money. Ralph, do you agree with this? definition? Yes, how could I disagree? So, and there is, uh, of course, uh, I think it probably needs a bit more explanation than, than just that one sentence, but it, I think it's Okay, fine. all right, ask me again. Super, <laughs> okay. Dave, in less than 20 sentences, how would you describe <laughs> a central bank digital currency or a GovCoin? Well, look, um, a digital currency is, is a form of electronic cash which is a, a, a claim on central bank risk-free money as opposed to a claim on commercial bank reserves. And I think what you really have to bear in mind when you're talking about it is because it's a cash replacement, it's not the same as the money that's in bank accounts. What's in bank accounts is electronic money, not electronic cash. So just as you know, your money lives in the bank account, right? But your cash lives in your pocket, on your desk, in your purse, in the car, on the floor, you know, anywhere. So electronic money lives in bank accounts, but electronic cash lives everywhere else. It can live in your phone, your television, your car, your watch, I mean, any device really. So you have electronic money that lives in bank accounts. You have electronic cash, which lives outside bank accounts. And digital currency is a form of electronic cash. And it must be that because it has to be a true cash replacement and you don't need a bank account to have cash. So, Ralph, do you think this idea of a central bank providing a digital form of cash directly to citizens, is this a radical idea in your opinion? Well, so, I mean, the radical thing is not about central banks providing currencies, which, of course, they've done since they exist in the form of banknotes and coins, as it just, uh, they've just said. So what is radical is the difference between the non-digital and the digital uh, currency, which opens up a whole uh, new world of possibilities and, 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 and opportunities. Um, but I, I don't think central banks will want to give it directly to their citizens. So I think, uh, yes, it will be a direct claim towards the central bank. That's the definition. But similar to the existing central bank money, i.e. cash, it will be distributed via established banking players and hopefully also via some um, new or more innovative uh, financial service providers, fintechs. So yeah, I mean, if, if central banks were going to provide digital currency direct to citizens, that would be an incredibly radical decision to, to, to bypass the central to bypass the commercial banks like that, but that's not what any central bank anywhere in the world is, 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 you know, what they're doing actually, you might see as very conservative, almost reactionary. You know, what, what the central banks are doing is, is they're saying, we're going to work with, they call it the two tier solution. We'll, we know, we'll, we'll be the 
first tier will be the provider of the digital currency. And then the second tier, which currently is commercial banks, will distribute that to the general public. Although I think, Ralph, I think I'm right in saying that the two tier that we would envisage, uh, actually in Europe or anywhere else, um, is not going to be restricted to commercial banks. I mean, it, you know, it'll be kind of like the existing idea of an electronic money license. I mean, any any company that can obey certain rules, that can that can hold certain reserves, that can act in certain responsible manners, will be allowed to distribute electronic um, di- digital currency to the general public. So it won't just be banks. Um, but yeah, yeah, Ralph's right. I mean, it's actually quite a conservative way of doing things. Yeah, and, 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 and yeah, hopefully it'll go that way because I think it is indeed a great opportunity for the non-bank PSPs here to, to enter that sphere. And now, obviously, payment institutions or money institutions, they are already in the business of um, handling accounts uh, um, for, uh, for, for, for clients. But I think it can even go beyond that because, um, uh, well, I'm... Uh, representing a lot of third-party providers under PSD2, which are actually not today touching money, and um, which are um, um, therefore not uh, are not holding accounts. So they're not the ASPSPs in the PSD2 game. They are the on the other side, providing value-added services. But here is an, probably an opportunity to actually to become an ASPSP to to get into that. Uh, uh, business without connecting to all these big, you know, bank backend systems and step two target, etc. But uh, doing that on a um, in a new way, uh, within a much more you know streamlined, slicker uh, payment uh, system. You're, you're, you're absolutely you're absolutely spot on, Ralph. I mean, I, I agree with this completely, and I, I think it's helpful uh, just because the language is confusing for people. So, sort of in my head, I think of accounts as belonging to the world of electronic money. Accounts are things that banks have, and that's where they store money. What we're talking about here really are wallets. We're talking about wallets where you can store digital currencies of all forms. Now, obviously, we want those to be connected because you need to be able to move money from your bank account to your wallet. They must be connected. But they're not the same thing. And I think in the general case... It's very important that they're not the same thing. We don't want the electronic cash infrastructure to be built on top of the electronic money infrastructure. That doesn't add anything to the resilience of the of the payment systems. Uh, what what we want is a parallel structure. You know, so if 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 Visa Europe goes down again, people can carry on using their electronic cash. If the mobile phone network goes out, people can use their electronic cash. I know I'm. I'm I'm touching on a sensitive topic here, but in China, and I'm sure this will be true in the UK as well, the ability to transact offline is critical to to creating a cash replacement for society. So, so it must be able to function when there's no power and there's no mobile networks. I should be able to I should be able to pass money from from my card to Ralph's phone or from my car to Ralph's watch. We should be able to do that without networks. If we're going to have a cash replacement, it must work offline. So it cannot sit on top of, of Target 2 and, and the retail networks and separate credit transfer. It must run in parallel with it. I agree 
100% round. But but it would have to be, in my mind, it would have to be, uh, well, of the more the, uh, the account-based fashion as opposed to token-based because it's where, that's where uh, payment service providers um, are, are, are playing. So if it was a purely, you know, a peer-to-peer bearer token-based exchange, then, then it's the, I guess, the software providers, the hardware providers um, that, um, that are in the business with that. If you are a PSP today or a, um, yeah, a fintech in that sense, then I think uh, you want to be the one that is uh, moving the money. Well, that, I mean, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting point because if, I mean, let, let, let's imagine, I mean, I'll just use this as a straw man example, but let's imagine, uh, kind of like China, you can only do offline person-to-person transfers if you have secure tamper-resistant hardware, right? So you, you have to have either the secure element in a phone or a secure enclave, or, or you have to have a chip that's in your watch or whatever, which is capable of a minimum level of cryptography. Which, by the way, that's not in itself a barrier. I mean, those chips, they come from Infineon. They're like 45 cents or something. I mean, you know, the, the, the chips that can do the strong cryptography that we need, they, they, they cost nothing nowadays. That's not a barrier. But let's just imagine, just for a straw man, you can only do the transfers between those chips. In which case, you might well argue that you don't need anything else behind that right so there's a chip in my watch there's a chip in my phone there's a chip in my car well there's a chip in my bank my bank is just using exactly the same system there's there are some chips in the cloud if i have a dumb let's say i've got a dumb phone i don't have a smartphone i've just got a dumb phone or i'm using my amazon alexa or something i'm just accessing a chip that's in the cloud but actually all of the value transfers are are very, very secure because they're between tamper-resistant hardware. In which case, I'm not sure it makes a difference whether we swap tokens between those devices or whether we change account balances between those devices. I think it could work either way. I do think there's a big implication, though, which is if, if what I think is true is true, and I think you seem to think something similar, if digital currency has to work in this offline manner, it cannot be a blockchain. It can't be, it can't be, you know, the, the, the people who are dreaming about, well, let's just use Bitcoin, they're, they're wrong. It, it, so can you implement certain kinds of fungible tokens in secure elements to make them work? I'm sure you can. Would you do it using the technologies that we talk about now in terms of tokens I don't know what you think, but I, I think not. No, I think you're right. I don't think it would work offline. And I think that is also one of the main, I guess, one of the reasons now uh, some are going into the second round of uh, trialing, uh, like in Sweden here, for example, with looking at offline cases, because I think it, it is quite clear that it has to work offline. And uh, so that does rule out anything that uh, whatever you can only consent over whatever a, a, a network. Um, and um and therefore, it won't work. But what I meant with account base is more about the, you know, the that you you, you um, it's about authenticating um, uh, the user. It's about linking 
the the account of the wallet with someone owning oh, oh right right sorry i, I misunderstood yeah. owning that wallet and then having um the whole thing only work in yeah well once account, once authentic well once kyc'd initially probably depending on um whatever the rules will be and i have a view on that as well i think we'll come on that but uh, um, um and otherwise then authenticated for the payment I think that, yes. that would be a, a good point to jump into where the issue of privacy, what, what's, the, what's the big debate about these coins and, and privacy? Why is privacy such a big component and why are the, you know, I guess the folks that aren't so much on the side of uh, CBDCs who say that, you know, it, it harms the privacy of, of the individuals? What, what's what's the, at the heart of this debate? Okay, I, well, let, let me take that from the wallet point that was just made. I'll move it on from there. So, well, that, that, that's a very good point about authentication, Ralph, because I, I personally think for wallets, we're moving into a slightly different world. In the case of bank accounts, the things that control bank accounts are, you know, people, basically. I mean, it's a, it's a person who has a bank account or a legal person, you know, a company that has a bank account. I don't think that's going to be true with wallets because I think all sorts of things will be allowed to have wallets. Uh, things will be allowed to have wallets. Bots will be allowed to have wallets, you know? So the idea of who is actually owning, I, I think this becomes a more complex topic in this world. And I'm not convinced that conventional KYC is the best way to manage that. I can't see that we can, for example, if you look at the inclusion goals around uh, digital currency, I, I'm not sure that we can achieve all those goals using the KYC AML infrastructure that we have right now. So I, I think it will need some real, some real rethinking uh, to move forward in this space. And, and I'll give you an example. I can, I can easily give you an example of this. Um, in the UK, there are, I can't remember the number, I think there's sort of, there's 1.2 million or so adults that don't have a bank account. In America, there are 100 million people who are unbanked or underbanked, which is not because of a shortage of banks, by the way. I mean, the reason why there are people who don't have bank accounts is not because they can't find a bank or, or they don't know what a bank is or they, you know. There are other barriers that need to be overcome. Now, we can spend money on subsidizing the cash infrastructure and serve those people through cash, which is a very bad idea because it's expensive and it means the costs fall very heavily on the poorest people. Or we could use that money instead to extend the digital cash infrastructure out to be more inclusive and to bring everybody into that new economy. If we're going to do that, I'm not sure we should be thinking about KYC in the same way. The way that the KYC system works right now is to build high walls around the accounts and then hope that if the bad guys get through the walls, then you can spot them on the inside. Uh, you know, e even The Economist uh, a couple of weeks ago said this is probably the least effective policy in the entire world about anything. When you look at the amount of money laundering, criminal behavior that actually gets intercepted, it's negligible. Maybe digital currency is the way to rethink that a little bit. So maybe if we let everyone have a wallet, 
But we use AI and machine learning to monitor the transactions and look for patterns and try to spot bad behavior and criminal activity. That actually might be a little more effective. If we keep people out of the system and keep people in cash, we have no idea what they're doing, right? I mean, if the bad guys are running around with cash, we can't track, trace, monitor, or find out what's going on. Maybe it's better to let lots more people have wallets, right? Just by proving they're a person. And then using more modern technology and more modern techniques to look for the bad behavior. If I have a wallet and you're not sure who I am, but I'm sending money to a cave in the Bora Bora Mountains every week, then you might want to bring in some conventional law enforcement to find out what I'm up to. Maybe that sort of rebalancing would work. Yeah, well, I, th I think we have had, uh, or we've, we've seen um, an evolution here with uh, KYC limits uh, coming down also on, you know, more alternative prepaid accounts, etc. And I don't think this has been really uh, going uh, going the right direction because, as you say, it, it is just that you're lowering the threshold for for getting authentic or for getting KYC, and then uh, pushing people into not using those electronic payment methods and, and, and cash, where limits are obviously much higher there. Um, and uh, so, I, I agree that that is not the right thing to do. But on the other side. I mean, we will have a situation where, and I think come back. Let me come back to this thing about moving the money, because uh, as uh, if you are in, if you are one of those intermediaries here in the future that are moving the CBDC, then you obviously you you have to abide by the law, uh, whatever it is. So you have to, you cannot ignore what whatever it is. So you have to. There will be limits by definition, on how much um, um, money can... If we take, if we take, if we take Sweden as a, as a case study, Ralph, because mm -hmm. you know, Sweden is obviously often held up to other people as an example of, of cashlessness. In Sweden, we see a real backlash against cashlessness because, because there, are, there are people who've been marginalised and excluded. They're, they're not part of that system. We, we can't reach those people through conventional systems of bank accounts and KYC. So we, we may have to look for more imaginative solutions. I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. You, you, you may think this is a crazy example, but suppose, suppose let's use DM as the example, right? Because it's Facebook and, it, and it's funny talking about Facebooks, right? So let's imagine I want some Facebooks and instead of doing conventional KYC, which costs lots of money and is a barrier to people coming into the system, Let's, let's just say I can have one if I have a Facebook account. He said, well, that sounds, that sounds absolutely crazy. Why they, That would be an insane system to let people have a wallet because they have a Facebook account. You know, all sorts of terrible people would have Facebook accounts, in there, which is true. But Facebook kind of know who you are, right? They know where you are. They know who your friends are. They know where you've been. They know what websites you look at. You know, it, it, would it be so crazy? I mean, like for us, that sounds, but if you're feeding that into an, a machine learning system, an AI system, I, I, I'm not so sure. So I, I, I kind of see digital currency as an opportunity to rethink on that inclusion side. Yeah. When you talk about intermediaries, but of course there aren't any. If I, if I send you 10, if I send
send you 10, whatever, let's say euros, right? I've got 10 digital euros in my wallet and I send them to your wallet. There are no intermediaries. The money just goes from my wallet to your wallet. End of story, right? Well, it would go via network here. And if you're authenticated and et cetera, you may even have to do an SCA for that. But actually, I'm, I'm quite with you um, on, on this KYC thing. But uh, I, I hear all the central banks saying, well, no, well, we, 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 we can't have that. We can't have anonymity and we, we shouldn't have it. And uh, I, I, I'm not arguing for anonymity. I know, I, I know. I think anonymity is a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, but, but the, um, well, when, when, well, I believe that if you want to, if you want to make sure that this is successful, you have to address it to some extent. And we'll come to the extent, I think, in a minute here. And, uh, but it has to do also with the KYC or non-KYC. And, um, well, so for example, in my response to the, uh, to the, to the ECB on their consultation, I was recommending to actually have, um, a low, limit but a limit well to have the possibility of um, of making anonymous payments to well within obviously the rules uh, that we have which may need changing but uh, so far we have our uh, AML legislation so you got to be in line with that but uh, if we do not allow this fully private um, um, uh, payments that many want or are in, envisaging, especially you know, I'm coming from Germany, so in my home country here, many people think so. Um, if you don't address this, you will leave the door wide open to the Facebooks and others uh, who who will who will and who can support that. So I think it is uh, important to have that, but with limits. I think, think you. I think you. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to jump in. I mean, I think that's no, we, interesting. we found something we could disagree about a little bit. I mean, it's really interesting. <laughs> that makes it much more fun for people. I mean, I think I'm I'm living in in Berlin, and you know, it's like a, a privacy to pay with cash to do whatever you want is like a, a god given right amongst Germans. So, I mean, what's what's wrong with wa- wanting to pay? Uh, with the in an anonymous way, it doesn't necessarily have to be for something criminal or something illicit. But I mean, uh, I don't know. And then I think also going into this, you know, potentially leaving the door open for Facebook and, and other types of institutions to offer these digital currencies. I mean, would you want like the Fed or a Facebook offering a digital currency? What would make you feel more comfortable? Well, what would make me feel more comfortable is is appropriate privacy regulation. So, so you can't use these words interchangeably. Anonymity and privacy aren't the same thing at all. So I think an anonymous digital currency would be an absolute catastrophe. It would actually be a disaster for society. Uh, it would it would allow the 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 rich and powerful to to act without any restraints whatsoever. It would free them from even the the, the you know the the very loose control that uh, democratic society exerts over them, and it would allow criminal behaviour to run completely rampant. So an anonymous currency mm. is a disaster, and there's no doubt about that in my opinion. Um, but that's not the same as saying we shouldn't have private currency. That's a very different point. So, for example, uh, I have an account with Barclays in the UK. For example, so now let's imagine uh, I buy a new BMW. And I need to create a BMW wallet to store money in for my car so my car can pay road tolls or whatever else it's doing, right? 
I log into the BMW website. Uh, BMW, BMW says, do you have a bank? It bounces me to Barclays. I do the secure login at Barclays. Barclays sends BMW an unforgeable cryptographic token that contains no personally identifiable information at all. And BMW use that to open the wallet. Now, now the BMW wallet has no idea who I am, right? None. But it knows that somebody knows who I am. So if I if I get up to some mm. bad behavior, if I use if I use my wallet, I don't know, in a bank robbery or something, um, when the police go to Barclays and say, well, who does this token belong to? Barclays will tell them it's Dave Birch, right? So it's quite possible to come up with very strong cryptographically protected privacy, which is not the same as anonymity. And I'm very much in favor yep. of that. I would make one little point about Germany. You said about Germans, you know, are very keen on, on paying for things privately and whatever. I have a slightly different interpretation of that because the Bundesbank's own figures, their own figures, it's not, not estimates, their own figures are that nine in 10 euro banknotes produced in Germany are never used in transactions, not rarely used in transactions or occasionally used in transactions or sometimes used in transactions. They are never used in transactions. They go straight underneath the beds of drug dealers and tax evaders and money launderers and, and so on. So, so the idea that the high cash usage in Germany is to do with people paying for things privately, I don't buy that at all. You know, the vast majority of cash in Germany is used only for illegal purposes. Well, I would say that the vast majority of my friends who are favoring privacy or maybe anonymity are probably not <laughs> in um, using it for illegal purposes. So I, I do think there is there is a genuine, genuine privacy concerns, and maybe it does need more explanation of the sort you just gave Look, about uh, I, I, the differentiation between privacy and and anonymity. Your 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 friends are probably much more law abiding, uh, but it, you know. If I if I see somebody paying their builder with twenty thousand pounds worth of fifty pound notes, as I did quite recently in the UK, I'm pretty sure they're not paying the builder in cash because of privacy concerns. I think they're paying the builder in cash because they're getting a discount because they're evading taxation on a substantial scale. And if you actually, if you, I don't know the figures for Germany, but if you look at the tax figures. In the UK, more than half of all the tax evasion in the UK is small businesses. And, and a lot of that is to do with sort of cash. So I, I'm unconvinced that a deep-seated commitment to privacy is responsible for the large amount of cash in circulation. Yeah, well, I think you are right, but it does need exactly that explanation I just gave and, and, and telling people that, that difference or where anonymity is actually not required to address their concerns, which uh, I think, to be fair... Um, the ECB has uh, actually tried to do also in their, you know, the, the report that came back now about the outcome of the consultation and that uh, whatever privacy was the number one concern, but only uh, whatever it was, uh, some lower amount uh, thinking about uh, full anonymity. So I do think that uh, many people already have or see that difference, but it just needs more. I, I think I think people's first reaction, I mean, People, I mean, remember, you and I are quite boring people, Ralph, because we spend a lot of time thinking about payments, and most normal people never do. 
So if you go to them and say, should digital currency be anonymous? They'll say yes, but that's because they haven't thought about it. They don't understand any of the implications. They just think, well, cash is anonymous, so digital currency should be anonymous. They don't understand why that would be so catastrophic. But when you explain it to them, I think most people are pretty reasonable. And if you say what we should provide for European digital currency is strong privacy, that becomes, in my opinion, that becomes actually a very positive selling point for, for a digital euro. That's, that's you know, for, for other people around the world, they might well prefer to hold digital euros rather than some other currencies because of those privacy protections. Not anonymity, not, not allowing criminal behaviour, yeah. delivering privacy to people the privacy that they need. Yeah, and this uh, privacy-enhancing technologies. Yeah, 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 absolutely. New pets of the... Yeah. Um, of the central banks, or at least the, for the ECB. I mean, I guess you're probably aware of that project, Stella, with the um, uh, with the Japanese who have now, or you spent some years looking into uh, possibilities of enhancing um, uh, privacy in these type of um, uh, well, for digital currencies, where you would then, for example, segregate information, as you say, and you would only be available to those who, who need to know law enforcement and only if and when that is really required. I mean, I, I, what I would say about that, Ralph, is I think, for, and, and I agree with the, I mean, the, the ECB uh, view on this, I think it makes a lot of sense. And, I, and, and I, the, the response has also made a lot of sense. Um, what I would say from the technological side, remember I come more from the sort of technology side, is I actually think those technologies are pretty tried and tested. It's okay. We don't need some new technology to be invented to do this, right? Because we understand how cryptographic blinding and homomorphic encryption and zero knowledge proofs and all these kind of things, we understand how those work. And, and it's interesting. You see the impetus. It's funny, I was talking to somebody the other day about this. So look at what's happened in the kind of health sector. Because, because of the need for sort of vaccination credentials and privacy around health, that's driven forward work around the W3C verifiable credentials, distributed identifiers. So there's pressures coming in other sectors, which we actually could bring in and exploit in the finance sector as well. So from a technological perspective, I, I feel reasonably optimistic. We, we, we have the technologies that we need to build that kind of privacy enhancing infrastructure. Yeah, and while you're touching there on, on, on identity probably being the common denominator for those different use cases to uh, to be linked up with the you know the well vaccination passports and and on one side or CBDC on the other side, uh, both uh, needing that uh, identity element to be linked. Well, I think the, the wallet point is really important, Ralph, because if if there, I mean, let, let's make the assumption from a business point of view. Let's assume that there is no margin whatsoever on, on CBDC transfers, right? If I, if I send some, some digital euros from my car to your watch, there is no transaction fee, there is no margin, nobody makes anything out of that. So, which actually, in a way, is like a real wallet. If I open my real wallet, I don't know what I've done with it, I could use it as a prop, but if I, if I open, oh, here it is. So if I if I open my wallet right now, oh, actually, it doesn't have any cash in it. There you go. How, how cashless am I? I'm proving the point. I'm a very cashless person. Everything else that's in my wallet, like my driver's license, my AA card, 
These are all to do with identity. Almost everything that's in my wallet is about identity, not about money, right? It's not cash. And the same will be true of a digital wallet. You know, the digital wallet has to provide central bank digital currency. Otherwise, it's not a wallet. But all of the value-added services that are in that wallet, the things that people could charge for, are nothing to do with the cash. It's 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 loyalty schemes and ticketing and and licenses and access passes and and all of these other things that go around it. So so the heart of the wallet is identity, and around that we have these other services. And only one of those services is electronic cash, and that's not a service anyone makes any money out of. I mean, this is why the sort of scenario planning around the land grab for wallets is quite important at the moment. And, you know, I, I, I've written before about the, the example of the DM network and, and you know, what we call Facebooks, um, because clearly the key, the key value driver there is control over the wallet space, not the currency. Uh, if, if, if Facebook can put you know, three, three and a half billion wallets out there around the world so that everybody that has Facebook, everybody that has Instagram, everybody that has WhatsApp, if every single one of those people automatically gets an electronic wallet that's capable of storing US dollars, that's that has pretty serious implications for a lot of people. You know, I mean, in some ways, it's great. The idea that I could buy shareware from a company in Vietnam, and I can pay them instantly, risk-free, with, with US dollar stable coins from my WhatsApp to their Instagram. In some ways, that's fantastic. But I don't know if it sounds so fantastic if you run the European Central Bank, if you're in charge of monetary policy, if you're in charge of, you know, I mean, what would happen, literally, what would happen if, if millions of people around the world just stop holding their local currencies and just hold dollars instead. What would the implications of that be? Or, or you know, in, in, in the, uh, along the Belt and Road, what happens if everybody just holds one instead of, you know, these things are so interesting. And, I, you know, people think, oh, it's just another way to pay. And it, it's not. It's a, it's a new parallel financial infrastructure. Yeah, and, and uh, I think that there is, you're touching on a, on a very concerning area also what i think is very concerning because um, now we know that uh, well this digital currency cbdc has got um, a lot of uh, push over the last couple of years and arguably also or maybe mainly because of uh, this private company facebook uh, with libra dm uh, well trying to push into this space and uh, by um, now everyone trying to do well okay well the idea is good but it should be done by the state by a central bank so now we're doing it in a scene in the form of cbdc and as i said earlier well even also with sufficient privacy that so that uh, we don't leave the door open to private companies to do something that um, that that we can't but the one thing that uh, the central bank cannot really do is on their own is uh, to do that uh, cross-border uh, business and uh, and address that in on a in a in a single-handed fashion. So when I mean, there are, I think, well, we know there are um, trials and pilot projects between countries and how to link up CBDCs amongst them. But I, uh, it, it looks like a difficult area. 
It is a difficult area. I mean, and let me be annoying and ask a challenging question because it's interesting exploring these ideas. But let's say if I'm in Sweden and uh, right now I have to get uh, euros to buy something from this country and I, I need to get hold of dollars because I want to buy some things from the US um, and I have to have a treasury management system to take care of all of this and I have to be exposed to exchange rate changes and fluctuations and so on. Why wouldn't I just use dollars? If it doesn't cost me anything to use dollars, I might as well just use dollars. So I can pay my suppliers with dollars. They all like dollars, so that's fine. Um, I'm quite happy to take customers' dollars. I'm happy with dollars. You know, is there really a foreign exchange problem or does the foreign exchange problem go away because everybody just uses dollars? Yeah, well, I guess oh, you're, yeah. uh, we would we would love to have that situation with everyone using euros instead. And I guess some are seeing here the opportunity to make that to push things in that direction. Absolutely, and that's that's why we have to come up. So, so you know, the the euro has not toppled the the dollar from its reserve status in its in its years of existence. So there has to be some other reason why people would want to use euros if it's not just going to be pure finance. So what other reasons could we have for people wanting to use euros? Privacy is one kind of thing. But we could also imagine, for want of a better word, because I hate the word, but I mean, suppose we allowed certain kinds of smart contracts, I mean, certain kinds of more sophisticated API infrastructure. You know, what if, what if digital euros could do some clever things that the other currencies couldn't. I mean, that's the kind of thinking that we need to take this forward. Uh, you know, if we just if we're just going to make it a, a you know a shadow of DM, what's the point? I mean, I think we should be more imaginative. You know, you think that and I, by the way, I, th I think that about the pound as well. I mean, I, I want I want you know digital sterling to be a fantastic currency that people want to use because it does amazing things. You know. Is the digital euro then the right name? Are we inherently holding it back by referring to what it is in the, the cash form? I mean, if you're saying that we need to think outside of, you know, the traditional mindset, is it worth thinking of it or calling it something else, do you think? What, like digital super euros or something? What do you mean? No, I'm not just, I don't know, because I think, you know, consumers here... The iron they, euro. That could be pretty good, like from Game of Thrones. Well, if you ask me, I think digital is right, and I think euro is also right, because it's supposed to be interchangeable with all the other euros we have. And uh, so I, I think you may add something to it, but I wouldn't lose any one of those two words. I, look, all, all I'm saying there, Ralph, is if, if people want to start doing some scenario planning around the advent of digital currencies... If they limit themselves to seeing digital currency just as another way of paying for things, they will miss the interesting, exciting, amazing new threats and opportunities in, in that space. And I, I think for the euro in particular, it, it could be a really interesting opportunity to kind of reset what the euro is. Um, Right, but uh, and and I think um, and I'm fully with you with that because uh, at a time as we are making commercial bank money so much easier to handle, 
instantly and easy, uh, more easily accessible. Um, so we are already replacing well physical cash with a lot of commercial electronic money, either commercial bank or other issuers. Um, and uh, we have these big projects to make, um, you know, ACT inst um, the new normal, and then to use it in um, in in shops as well, not just in e-commerce uh, for 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 payments, so bank transfer payments, not needing cash, not needing cards, and have the advantages of all the push payments and everything comes with that. And so there is a lot of drive going forward in making commercial bank money. Uh, better and usable in more places so when and in particular also instant so when then cbdc comes along in a few years um, it'll hit a market where instant payment is already the new normal hopefully and so the, the real-time effect um, or wherever you would today think about how to, how and where cbdc would be used wouldn't be much different from what you then have uh, commercial bank money being used already. So what is then the big difference? And for me, I know that you don't like the word smart contract, uh, <laughs> et cetera, but uh, I think it's to do with the, uh, with, uh, with the programming of the money itself and, well, the network behind. No, look, I, I think the... Um this issue about programmability links to the point uh, about innovation. So, because if I was the ECB, I want the digital euro to be a platform for incredible new products and services. I, I want it to be a fundamental stimulus to invention and sustainable innovation in Europe. I, I want kids sitting in their garages to think, oh, wow, if we use this API, we can do something amazing, you know, using the money. Now, because I'm old and boring, I can only think of traditional things. I can think, well, actually, I can think of a very good way of implementing escrow services uh, using smart contracts, right? But that's because escrow services already exist, just not very efficient. I know what they are, and I'm old and conservative and whatever. But there'll be kids in their basements who will be thinking of things that would just never even occurred to us uh, to do using these. And we want them to, to, to unleash, uh, uh, you know, invention uh, around this. So, so this point about programmability, I, I'm, I'm with you about that. And I think there are good arguments for saying that the overall cost-benefit analysis for central bank digital currency actually tilts very heavily towards those benefits which we don't know that's why it's hard to think about them so we can call i can figure out okay if we had a digital currency we'll save this much money on atms we'll save this much money on armored trucks we'll save this much money on bank robberies i mean i can add up the costs and it looks okay right that we would save some money is it enough to transform financial services no it isn't Right. On the benefits side, the benefits we can't imagine because the kids are building those in their garages. We don't know what they're going to make Spotify or Skype or iPhones. I don't know what they're going to do with digital currency. But I have a reasonable faith that if you put that programmability into place, that flexibility, then, then they will build something amazing. So I am very 
optimistic, very positive about that, Ralph. But if you ask me, what will those services be? I haven't a clue. I don't know. Yeah, you, well, I think you, you, you have a few examples that you already mentioned in your book. So, and, and, uh, and, I th- and I find it very fascinating because once you start thinking about those possibilities, you're, you're quickly coming from one to the other, like whatever money expiring or not to be used with. Well, the pandemic, or, I think. Or with someone uh, or, and, and I, I was, uh, I was liking the, when I, when I thought about, you know, the expiry of, um, of, of money, like the stimuli checks there. Yeah, if that yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, be done easier electronically than by check, obviously. And then secondly, you could uh, actually make it expire um, according to the, to the, whatever the, the stimulation of the economy you have desired. And, um, and so it would just run out of uh, existence. And, and I think we've seen, um, I think we've seen in a number of countries the ability to deliver stimulus directly electronically. I mean, you, actually, in, in many developing countries, this is actually done through mobile phone wallets. But that ability to deliver stimulus directly is something I, I never really thought about that much when I was writing the book, because obviously that was before the pandemic. But yes, you're absolutely right. There are, there are use cases like that supporting refugees and, and so on, which yeah, or, or really you, can only be done using digital currency. They can't be done using conventional bank accounts. Yeah, and, and the other example I thought, well, you know, when, when, you, when you get this money or when generally when you, if you get welfare money, whatever, some support for family, and uh, it, it, it might make sense to program the money in a way that it can't be spent on alcohol, for example. Um, well, actually, that that I slightly disagree with. So that's that's in English, the word for that is hypothecation. We call that hypothecation of, of funds, um, and I, I'm 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 familiar with it. I'm pretty sure that the research shows that doesn't quite work in the way people like us would intend, because you know basically people want to buy alcohol, so they will trade away their their hypothecated money at a discount in order to obtain the unhypothecated money. So I, I understand the sentiment. I think in that particular example, I'm not quite so sure. But in the demurrage example that you gave, which is the, the, the money that has to be spent, you know, you can't, you know, look, look what happened to the stimulus checks in America. They went into cryptocurrency gambling and, and, and Tesla stock. You know, how did, well, how did that benefit society? You know, the idea that you have to go and spend the money on retail goods and services, that's, you know, I think that's very powerful. You're, you're right to highlight that. Gentlemen, we're, we're almost at time. This has been an incredible conversation. Um, I think before I was on, yeah, maybe not the so informed in terms of payments and use cases of uh, central bank digital currencies, I thought kind of, you know, just with this, I'm a consumer, I'm a citizen, I need my privacy, my anonymity, but after this, I'm of a totally different mindset. Did I just, I read, always... did I just read something by you in Journal of Digital Banking a couple of days ago? Mm, yes, you probably did. I probably did. And in that same edition of Journal of Digital Banking, there's a paper by the Norwegians. Ah, um, uh, by from, the, from DMB. Yeah, about yeah. about st- how the stimulus was so much more effective in Norway, because everybody has a digital ID and everybody has a bank account, you know. So so you know, if you imagine those advantages, but extended out to people that don't have digital IDs and don't have bank accounts, Ralph's right. I mean that that would transform the way that relief works 
pandemic support, refugees, you know. So that's why we need so much more creative thinking about this sort of thing. But um, anyway, Ralph, I, I hope I hope it was interesting enough. Um, and you, you made me think about some some really interesting things there. So thank you. Well, it's us thanking you. This was um, enlightening. And uh, thanks for highlighting some of the very, really important points there and the differences between, I think, one of the biggest difference, one of the most important points really here going forward is how to address the disparity concerns and to, and to bring that into a rational discussion uh, also about uh, what what is it that you really want and don't ask for things that you don't really want once you thought about it and and all that so i think that's a very uh, privacy is an odd it's an odd case like that isn't it it's it's because it's highly asymmetrical people want privacy for themselves because they know that they're not criminals but they don't want privacy for anybody else because they might be criminals you know it's a it's kind of paradoxical the way people feel about this but I know, with some intelligent thinking, we can make it work, I'm sure. Super. Okay, thanks so much, gentlemen. And thank you to our listeners for, yeah, sticking with us. And uh, I know you've all kind of come away with some different opinions and mindsets and a whole new way of thinking about how we can make uh, CBDCs a, a positive and, you know, almost fundamental change to the way we think about uh, money and cash. Mm -hmm.